All right, well, let's turn over to Proverbs chapter 6 tonight, Proverbs chapter number 6, and you have the handout there in front of you, and that will uh, guide you tonight. And uh, as we look at Proverbs chapter number 6, we're going to be dealing with verses 12 through 19 this evening. And as we begin, I want to just point out uh, two verses, and then we'll go back and we will look at uh, the verses in, in, in totality tonight. But look with me at verse 14, and then we're going to look at verse number 18. Uh, Proverbs 6 verse 14 says, Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Now look at verse 18. And heart that it deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. You see, there is a common theme running in both of those verses. We see a reference to the heart. We see a reference to devising mischief. And we see this idea of sowing discord. As we look at this tonight, we need to keep in mind that Solomon is describing the heart of a wicked person. Now, when we talk about the wicked, we're not saying that in any sort of pride or any sort of arrogance saying, you know, there is the wicked and then there's me. Uh, I'm so glad that I have uh, been delivered from all of my wickedness because tonight we all know that there is still wickedness that remains in each and every one of us. Wickedness has not been completely removed. Although our sin has been paid for, we are still prone to wickedness. So I think we need to approach this text tonight, first of all, by not approaching it with a pride uh, sense. In other words, we don't approach this saying, I'm glad I'm not like other people. I'm glad I don't have these issues Because had it not been for the grace of God, verses 12 through 19 would describe every single one of us. And yet Solomon, as he writes to us, is reminding us that those who are outside of Christ, those who are not part of the family of God, still remain in their depravity. Now, when we talk about a depraved heart, Uh, We're talking about something that is natural. We're talking about what we are born with. We are born in our depravity. Total depravity means that we are incapable of doing that which is pleasing to God. That's why it's called total depravity. Now, people, various denominations teach different variations of depravity. Some say a man is depraved, but not totally that within him remains some good, some goodness. Now, he's not talking about the ability to do good things because even a wicked person, even a person who is not saved, can do good deeds. When we talk about depravity, we're talking about that which is spiritual depravity. We're talking about unable to render or remedy our sinful condition. So when we talk about the wicked here, He is primarily talking about those who are still in that depravity. They have not been redeemed. They they have not repented. They have not believed. So a person who is yet still outside of the body of Christ or has yet to be converted is deliberately and continually devising wicked things. Now, in our mind's eye, that's difficult to comprehend. 
to intentionally and deliberately to be set on devising wicked and running to mischief. That's why the title tonight, I, I very simply entitled it that the wicked devise mischief. In other words, that is their manner of life. He who is still in his depravity, his main goal is to devise, or we might say to plan, wicked things. So what is the purpose? Why does a man devise wicked things? Or what Solomon refers to as wicked imaginations in verse number 18. Well, you have to take these two texts in context. In verses 12 through 15, the primary emphasis is on what the wicked man does. All right? How the wicked man functions. How he operates. Verses 16 through 19 are the most familiar portions to us because it is referred to as the seven abominations that the Lord hates. We often hear it preached this way. There are six things the Lord hates. Yea, there are seven that are an abomination to him. That's what verse number 16 tells us. So in other words, what we're seeing here is we have two passages of Scripture that go together, yet they could stand alone separately. In other words, I could have preached tonight just on verses 12 through 15, and we would have gotten the, we would have gotten the emphasis of the fact that the wicked devise mischievous things. But when we take them together, what we see is that the wicked who devise mischief are the very people who are guilty of the seven things which God hates. In other words, they go together. It is the, verse 12 tells us, the naughty person, the wicked man who walks with a forward mouth, he is the one who is at the very center of these seven things that God hates. Now we understand that just because we're in Christ does not mean that there aren't times in our life when we devise wicked things. I mean, let's be honest, there are times when we wake up in the morning and we're just not feeling that great. As a matter of fact, we might even feel a little bit irritated. We might even get up one day and feel like, you know what, I just don't feel like being good today. I just want to, you know what, I'm just, I'm having it. I am, I am just having a bad day. And sometimes our heart devises things that we normally wouldn't do. Sometimes pride's a problem in every one of us. Sometimes we get up and we think, you know what, this life's all about me. And I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live my way. So we can be guilty of the things which God says he hates. We're going we're gonna to expound on this more, but look at verse 17. It is possible for a child of God to be guilty of a proud look. It is possible for a child of God to be guilty of a lying tongue. Now, I hope it's not possible, it shouldn't be, for our hands that shed innocent blood. That sounds very extreme, but even in that case, wicked imaginations, feet that are swift to running to mischief. It is possible to be a false witness. And it is possible, look what he says, to sow discord among brethren. So folks, we cannot tell ourselves tonight that I'm glad I don't ever have to worry about these things because they can still creep up in our lives and we still could be guilty of the seven things which God hates. One of the great lessons that I've had to learn very much the hard way is how prevalent spiritual pride really is. How I don't have to worry about certain things anymore because I've been saved a long time. Or I don't have that same struggle anymore because I've moved beyond that. 
It is at those moments that we begin to understand that these things can rear their ugly head again. So we say all that to understand that although we know that evil thoughts arise in the wicked, when evil thoughts arise in the godly, we have something that the ungodly don't have. We have the promptings of our conscience, first of all, but number two, we also have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm saying. When you have a bad suggestion of your heart, in other words, when you feel like doing sin, and by the way, it happens to all of us, there's times we say, listen, you know what? I just feel like this is my life. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. We have something that happens. Our conscience pricks our heart, and then the Holy Spirit convicts us, and, and hopefully we yield to Him and we move away from the temptation. One of the great examples in, in the Scripture, and there's a number of them I could have taken you tonight, but there's one I want to show you tonight, and it's regarding the conduct of David when he found himself in a cave with Saul. And I want you to see this in 1 Samuel 24, kind of as a way of introduction as we get into this tonight. 1 Samuel 24, and I want you to see verses 1 through 8. Now remember, by this time, uh, Saul has already been pursuing David. He has pursued him once. He has, he has tried to uh, nail him to the wall with a javelin. He has done everything he could to... And David, we would think had every right to respond in kind. 1 Samuel 24 says this, And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats, by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, now watch this, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. Now, make note of that. All David did, quote-unquote, all David did was cut part of Saul's robe off without Saul knowing it. And it came to pass, just by this action, it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Now, David's soldiers were telling him, this is your chance, kill him. This is your chance, David instead privately cuts off part of Saul's uh, robe. And look what he says in verse 6. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Now we say, what does that have to do with what we're talking about tonight? I took us here to show us that this is the prompting of the godly. 
In other words, these things that the wicked are doing, they don't have the prompting of their conscience and the prompting of the Holy Spirit of God to flee from wickedness, but you and I do. David knew he had done wrong even by simply cutting off the robe. Why do we know that? Because the Bible says his heart smote him. He was convicted by just doing that, but yet he, he pushed aside the sinful action. Now, folks, tonight what I'm telling us is that when we consider the wicked and we consider our own life, God has given us the ability to say no and the ability to not do the wicked things our hearts sometimes desire. Now, tonight we're going to consider primarily what the ungodly do. But I want to remind us to keep ourselves understanding what's being presented here. So let's first of all look at the deeds of the wicked. We know that the deeds of the wicked man are sinful. Uh, We could define sin tonight. We could understand what sin is. Sin is transgressing God's law. It is disobedience to his law. But look what it says in verses 12 through 14. It describes the wicked man. A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a forward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. First of all, it mentions his characteristics. He is a naughty person. It refers to his forward mouth. To have a forward mouth means to have a perverse mouth. The word wicked there, wicked is, it literally means worthless. A naughty person is a man or a woman of iniquity. So what is Solomon saying here? He is saying that a man of iniquity or a man who is still in his sin is a worthless man and he walks with a perverse mouth. So you see in your handout there, his mouth is forward or his mouth is perverse. This man is referred to as a man of iniquity and a worthless person. He is a man in iniquity, and his perverse speech gives him away. He's worthless in the fact that nothing he says is with the intent of glorifying God or doing any other person any good. So we talk about this individual. Now, we would hope that this doesn't fall into us as believers, that we would never be found being this type of man who is speaking away and using his mouth to not glorify God and not help the brethren. He's not doing any good with his speech. Have you noticed that even the perverse speech of people is now more generally accepted than it's ever been before? And I'm not just talking about just profanity. I'm talking about uh, anything goes. Uh, you, you, can, uh, you can blaspheme God and it doesn't even seem to bother people anymore. People just seem to move through as if it's no big deal. So the first of these deeds, we see that the deeds of the wicked are sinful. His mouth is forward or perverse. Number two, we see his manner of life is deceitful. This is an interesting way that Solomon puts this. He says, he winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. What in the world does he mean? What what does it mean to wink with his eyes? And, and, And when you start digging and pulling this apart, 
you realize what Solomon's talking about is the person who is a, a wicked man who has this perverse life is one that signals with his eyes. In other words, he is, he is giving you his intent that he's up to no good. He speaks with his feet. Now, obviously, he's using this as an allegory because we know the feet don't speak. But what he's talking about is that the feet demonstrate his perverseness, where he goes. And look what it says. And teacheth with his fingers. What does all this mean? It means that this perverse man, this, this wicked man, gives signals with his eyes, his feet, and his fingers. And what he does is he's speaking to some in other words, what he's trying to do is he's trying to conceal what he is saying from other people. In other words, the wicked always has cohorts. The wicked are never just alone. And we need to be on guard against these types of individuals. The Bible is not silent about this idea of, of winking with the eyes. In other words, it's to give a signal to those who share in the same life. Over in Proverbs 10.10, the Bible tells us this, He that winketh with the eye causeth sorrow, but a prating fool shall fall. There's that principle again of the winking eye. Back in Psalm 35, verse number 19, we see the same principle here. Psalm 35.19, and it tells us this, Let not them that are mine enemies wrongfully rejoice over me. Neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. For they speak not peace, but they devise deceitful matters against them that are quiet in the land. So what we see here is this manner of life is deceitful. He is living a life that is intended to deceive Verse 14 back in our text tells us, and your handout shows you, that his methods are continual. In other words, this is something that is constant. Forwardness, verse 14, is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. This worthless, perverse, sinful man who's been described as having a depraved heart has a heart that is continually devising some kind of evil. Specifically, the evil that is mentioned here is the evil of sowing discord. Discord is a, another word for division. Causing those who would be together to be divided. We know that the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse number 1 about the apostles. And it uses this terminology in Acts 2, verse number 1, that they were in one accord. So what this wicked man does is he intends on dividing. He intends on splitting. Discord is the opposite of harmony. Discord is in and of itself, is meant to destroy. Now, discord can be sown. What does that mean? Not with needle and thread. Sown means to plant the seeds. In other words, it is not difficult, folks, for us to sow discord among people. As a matter of fact, it comes very naturally to us. We are, by nature, very, very manipulative people. If there's something we want, we can 
pull the right strings to get the circumstances to come around to our way of getting what we want. Sometimes that means we may do, do that by sowing discord between two people. The greatest illustration I can think about is even in a very practical way, children sometimes have a way of understanding how to sow discord between mom and dad. How to get them on opposite sides. Some children are very masters at that. They know exactly how to plant a seed of division. This wicked man, that's what he's desiring to do. He desires discord. Sometimes discord doesn't show up right away. Sometimes it can be sown and it's very subtle and it takes time. But eventually what you see is then you have discord. And what we see in verse 19, he even sows discord among the brethren. So we see the deeds of the wicked man. His mouth is forward. His manner of life is deceitful. Number three, his methods are continual. Verse 15 shows us that the doom of the wicked will be sudden. In other words, he's not getting away with this. Verse 15, therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. So here's what this verse is promising to the wicked, that he will experience calamity. Calamity is a downfall. It's a destruction. It is a crisis. To suffer a calamity is to be rewarded for the evil in which you have done. Now remember, this wicked devises mischief continually and intentionally. So what is he doing? He is plotting the downfall of others. Now, this happens in Scripture. I'm going to show you one example of this tonight. Often, the wicked who plan to bring down someone else often are brought down with the very means in which they sought out to destroy with. Can anybody think of a great example of a person in the Bible who set out to create, do something wicked against and he ended up, he ended up being punished with his own devices? It's a man, uh, there was a man by the name of Mordecai who was, who was living that which was right. And Haman said, I am going to hang that man on the gallows in which I am building. Well, guess what happened? Haman ended up being hung on the gallows he built to hang Mordecai with. It's in the book of Esther, if you want to turn there. Esther chapter number seven. Let's just look at this briefly. Uh, it's a familiar passage to, to many, but some it, it may be brand new. But when we look at this, what we're seeing here is we are seeing this example of a man who plots to do evil is bringing calamity upon himself. So let's look at Esther chapter number seven. Esther seven we can't read all of this, but this will, give us, this will give us the idea here of what's happening. So it's the, it tells us in verse 1, So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom." Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. 
But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he, and where is he, that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the palace at a banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbonah, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. I give us that as an example to show us that oftentimes the wicked... Their plots, their planning often ends up being the very method or calamity that comes upon them. That's what Solomon, as he writes here, talks about the calamity that will come suddenly. To come suddenly means it will come very quickly. It will come without notice. Second part of that verse, not only who experienced calamity, he will not escape the judgment of God. The destruction is described in two ways. Suddenly, and without remedy. To be without remedy means to be ruined without a hope of any recourse or any rescue. So what's the application here? In these verses, 12 through 15, Solomon describes the depravity, the depraved heart of a worthless and a wicked man. He's described as a constant liar. He signals his true intentions to his wicked friends with his eyes, with his feet, and with his fingers. His heart is full of rebellion. He spends time thinking of all the evil things he can do. He plans, he devises, he scripts, he stirs up discord. He causes division. But what does God say? God says this man who does this will be destroyed suddenly and will be broken beyond any help or any hope of healing. Look at verse number 16. And let's look at your handout, the deceit that the wicked sow. Now we get into, again, this is what the wicked man does. And now Solomon says, here are the seven things that the Lord hates. These seven things are in many ways the characteristics of the wicked man, what the wicked man does, who the wicked man is. First of all, we see that the Lord, in verse number 16, it says, these, these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. So the Lord hates pride, the Lord hates the lying tongue, and he hates hands that shed innocent blood. People often ask the question, well, how do we reconcile this verse with John 3.16, which says God loves the world? 
Well, there are things in which God loves. There are people which God loves, but there are also things which God hates. You cannot preach a God who is all loving without preaching that there are things God hates. Now, again, be careful when you see things in Scripture by describing words in human terms. The biggest mistake with the word hate is in the example of Jacob and Esau. When it talks about he has loved Jacob and he hated Esau, the biggest problem we run into is we try to put a human thought on this and put a human emotion into it. When God is hating, he is hating. It is even beyond the realm of a human comprehension. And so that's what's here. When we see the word hate, don't think about the word hate when sinful men despise other people. This is different. But he calls it an abomination. Now, the easiest way to define abomination is to define it in our human terms as something that is detestable. In other words, God has no room for these things. He detests pride. He detests the lying tongue. He detests the hands that shed innocent blood. He's emphatic about this. He's emphatic in the fact that he goes on and he says, these are an abomination to him. These are detestable things. Now, it's not a coincidence that verse 17 connects in some ways with verse 13. He winketh with his eyes, a proud look. He speaketh with his feet, verse 17, a lying tongue. He teacheth with his fingers, Hands that shed innocent blood. You see how they're connected. These are, these are not just popcorn thoughts. The wicked devise mischief, and they are guilty of the seven abominations which the Lord hates. The verse 17 shows us that the eyes, the tongue, and the hands can and do sin. They're capable of sinning. God hates and holds in detest or calls him an abomination sinful things. Pride, prideful look or a proud look is also sometimes referred to in Scripture as haughty eyes. Over in Psalm 18.27, there is this description. Psalm 18.27 tells us, For thou wilt save the afflicted people, but wilt bring down high looks. So we see there's a connection there. Psalm 101, verse number 5. Psalm 101, 5 tells us this. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. So we see that these things that God condemns in Proverbs are things that are a common theme that runs throughout the Scripture. A proud look. Number two, a lying tongue. What is a lying tongue? The best definition I think I have ever found about what a lie really is, and this is not my definition, here, here's, here's what I found. Lying is the willful perversion of truth, not only by speech, but by any means whereby a false impression is conveyed to the mind. In other words, lying is not just by what our mouth says. 
You can lie by winking with the eyes. You can lie by speaking with the feet. You can lie by teaching with the fingers. You can sow discord and devise mischief continually by lying. This lying tongue. I had never seen a quote from this man. I'm not sure who he is. So if you go home and look him up and you say, why is pastor giving? I don't know who this man is, but this quote was great about the tongue. He says, an unbridled tongue is the chariot of the devil, wherein he rides in triumph. The course of an unruly tongue is to proceed from evil to worse, to begin with foolishness and go on with bitterness, and to end in mischief and madness. Edward Rayner, I don't even know who he is, but the quote is right on. We see that God hates these things. He hates pride. He hates the lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. Verse 18 of Proverbs 6, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. What are feet swift to mischief? It means to have an eager desire or an unquenchable energy to carry into effect the sin which their heart desires. In other words, this is an intentional. They devise wickedness. The heart thinks up evil things. The heart thinks up evil intentions. It thinks up evil plots connected to the feet that now can carry out what the heart desires. It's interesting that Solomon uses these ordinary body parts to describe how wickedness and mischief is devised in the heart. With the evil that we talk about and the evil we think about, it can't all be blamed on the devil. Everybody likes to say, well, the devil made me do it, and the truth of the matter is, 99% of what happens, the devil didn't make you do anything. That was our own wicked heart and our own wicked desires. One of the, one of the greatest cop-outs among even believers is when they continue to sin or they, have, they fall into a sin problem, they say, oh, the problem's not my heart. The problem is the devil made me do it. No, the problem is that we failed to yield to the pricking of the conscience and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Folks, I'm telling you right now, the devil cannot make you do anything you don't want to do. Yeah, we blame the devil for everything because it makes us feel better about, well, the devil made me do it, then that lessens the fact. It doesn't. It actually, for the child of God, that inflames it. Why? Because we have the conscience. We have the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, we like to say the devil made us do it or like to say that we fell into sin. We wouldn't fall into sin if we didn't get so close to it. And that's the problem. We get very close to it. Even the Bible tells us that about the heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? We know in, in the book of Genesis, before the flood came, God himself said every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we know we're starting from a place that what is in man is not good. 
But we see that their feet that are, they're quick to run to evil or create mischief. That's what it is to devise wickedness. And then verses 19 and 20, or verse, yeah, verse 19, the Lord hates dishonesty and discord. He hates dishonesty and discord. We've kind of talked about this already, but he says, a false witness that speaketh lies and he that soweth discord among the brethren. It's been said by many that bearing false witness and sowing discord go hand in hand. In other words, oftentimes to sow discord requires you to be a false witness. In other words, you say something or give the idea that something isn't true. Do you know most times of discord and most times of those things that happen often are based upon a lie? I have watched entire families destroyed over a false witness sowing discord in the family. I've heard of cases where churches have split wide open because a false witness sowed discord within that body of believers. Think about how quickly, how quickly we accept false witness testimony. Half of what you hear on the news every night is a half-truth. And that's, a, that's not even the right word. It's a lie. And yet we hear it and we say, I believe it. That's what a false witness does. A man gets called up to the witness stand in a courtroom, promises to give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but yet some have even sat on those stands. They have put their hand on the Bible and they have said, I'm telling you the whole truth, and they've lied, and their lie at that point was never caught. Yet God says, I hate dishonesty. I hate discord. Jesus is pronouncing a, a blessing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, in part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed is the peacemaker. He who sows discord is exactly opposite. God has utter contempt for those who create discord. We even know that in Exodus chapter 20, all the way back to the, to the, the Ten Commandments, and again, we mentioned this on Sunday. The Ten Commandments were, were never meant to just be saved. Those don't matter anymore. The Exodus 20, verse number 16 tells us this. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Do you know every time we don't tell the truth, you're bearing false witness? Every single time. One of the most dangerous things we do is we tell our children or we tell other people it's just a little white lie. We've all said it. There's no such thing. Any lie is bearing false witness. Any way that I pervert the truth, God hates. God hates false religion. Some would have you believe God just wants us all to get along. It's impossible to get along with false religion. It's impossible to bear a true witness if that which you are locking arms with is false. Being a false witness should have no part in a child of God's life. So there's, six, there's these six things, seven things, he says, 
pride, lying, murdering, plotting evil, and eagerness to do wrong, false witness, and sowing discord. Those are the seven things God hates. Now, last week we learned about the slothful and the lazy, the sluggard. Remember him? And he was condemned for doing nothing. This man is now condemned for doing all the sin and wickedness he can think of. So it is possible to commit sin by not doing, and it is possible to sin by doing. This man being described here says and does everything with evil intent. That's the difference. The Bible tells us his ruin will come quickly, it will come suddenly, it will come without remedy. Folks, here's the application. If God hates these things, if God hates them, then we must hate them ourselves. If God says, I hate the proud look, I hate the lying tongue, I hate hands that shed innocent blood, I hate a false witness, I hate these things, then those things we should hate. And as you see there in your handout, we must personally be on guard against these sins, avoid them and pray against them and avoid them. That's intentional. Avoid them twice. Avoid it, pray, and avoid it. Why? Because the temptation is still going to be there. I want to finish with that quote just across the page from Spurgeon there. It says, We declare upon scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief, so depraved, and so inclined to everything that is evil, and so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained towards Christ. I thought that was a great, great quote to end with. The wicked man devises mischief. Let's go ahead and stand and